This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So we mentioned some of the COVID headlines, and our news team has certainly been covering them. Uh, And among the COVID headlines, also new coronavirus cases in the U.S. surging to the highest weekly level since early February, fueled by that highly transmissible Delta variant. Charlie was just talking about it. Death rose by 49%. That's the biggest weekly increase since December. And China is punishing dozens of local officials for failing to curb that COVID-19 outbreak in that country. And so uh, the country's former health chief there saying the idea of, quote, living with the virus is unacceptable. We've got a great voice to uh, bring in. He is back with us, Dr. Jacob B. Kraft. He's a biologist. He is CEO and co-founder of the privately held biopharmaceutical company Strand Therapeutics. He joins us on the phone from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. B. Kraft, good to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. How are you? I'm fantastic, Carol. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well, trying to manage through and <laughs> filter through some of the headlines. The current round of virus headlines, cases surging, uh, especially for those not vaccinated, what needs to be top of mind for our audience and the general public in your view? I think two things. One is uh, dom- domestically, we need to make sure that we're getting vaccines out as quickly as, as we as we possibly can. I think the uh, I think now finally the Biden administration is also taking the correct step, pressuring the, the FDA to prioritize the you know the, the full review uh, and uh, approval of the COVID vaccine. Um, and internationally, we need to be getting vaccines out to the developing nations. Uh, the Delta variant was first picked up in India during their uh, during their major outbreak uh, recently um, or uh, a month ago, uh, and that likely led to a huge international spread of it, which is now threatening you know kind of the return to normalcy that we saw. Right now, the Wellcome Trust is reporting that one in two. Uh, people in wealthy nations is vaccinated, but only one in 74 wow. are vaccinated in the developing world. And in the developing world where sanitation is often, you know, not as, as well, and people are living in much tighter quarters in a lot of these areas, major cities and places like India, it further increases our, our risk of spread. And so it's just unacceptable that we still haven't been able to get these vaccines um, out into these uh, uh, developing areas because every single day that goes by, we risk uh, a vaccine uh, a, vac- a fully vaccine sort of resistance uh, virus emerging either here or abroad. How tricky do you think it becomes, especially as people start to talk about, including Dr. Fauci, about giving out boosters already? And how do we balance the developing world where some of them haven't even gotten their first vaccine individuals there? And now we're talking about boosters potentially for those in the developed world. Right now, we have a, a, a bigger problem than, than just the boosters. We have a problem of not enough people getting vaccinated in the United States, which, which honestly, while I respect everyone's right to, to choose themselves, when you live in a society, there is a certain amount of, of, of societal duty 
and and let's face it, patriotism that you should have to protect uh, those Americans around you. This outbreak of the new variant is is due to uh, uh, super spreader events happening, mostly driven by the unvaccinated population. Of course, now we're seeing them jump into the vaccinated population, and it's 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 very sad to see. But meanwhile, uh, I think it was the state of Alabama I saw recently had 74,000 vaccines expire. Uh, while they held them mm. as people did not take them. And so the the idea here, and it's been the entire time, is that we have enough uh, vaccines here stateside. We should probably be doing more to get vaccines out to the developing world before they expire as well. Um, and continuing to just incentivize the, uh, the, the massive manufacturing of these vaccines, I, I think that at, at this point, um, it's more of a logistical and a prioritization issue of getting vaccines where they're most needed than it is of just not simply having enough. I mean, if, if you're going to say there's not enough for the developing world, but then Alabama is going to let 74,000 vaccines expire in a freezer, mm-hmm. um, I think that that's also unacceptable. Yeah, it feels like a crime, um, many would argue. What are yeah. you doing for your own employees? There's increasingly we're seeing employee, uh, employers and other institutions saying, if you want to work with us, you've got to be vaccinated. Um, you know, we, we looked at and talked with a lot of other executives in the industry about this. I, I think we're very blessed uh, both as a biotech company and as a, <laughs> a messenger RNA company to have, uh, you know, uh, without any prompting from us, uh, 100% uh, vaccine adherence. Um, just, you know, I think that people, when they are uh, educated about the science and, and understand how, uh, how safe and effective and impactful these vaccines are, um, it wasn't something that really came up as a, as a general issue. Um, I, I think that it's nice, uh, actually, to see that some of the larger players, I saw the military recently, um, saying that they're going to be starting to mandate the, the vaccines. I mean, uh, I, I think that a lot of these employers should should you know really incentivize their employees to to get these vaccines, especially people that work at tech and biotech companies. Uh, it's you know it's clearly uh, what's going to save us from uh, from a, a vaccine resistant mutation. And while I think mRNA is a is an absolutely miracle of a, a of a platform in, in terms of how quickly it could be uh, repurposed, Stefan Dansell and Uber Sahin from Moderna and BioNTech have talked uh, at length about making new vaccines against the new variants to be more effective uh, against new uh, sort of mutations that may arise. Uh, but it, the fact of the matter is we have an effective vaccine uh, that we just need to get into people's arms uh, immediately, and it should be on employers. Really, I'd like to see the, the U.S. government really step up and start to, to mandate if, if people really want to return to a maskless life, we have to have a way to actually verify that, that people have been back. Dr. Beecraft, we talked about the U.S. backing uh, waiving patents on COVID vaccines, you know, a lot of researchers thought that was terrific, that they thought that that was a good thing. A lot of drug makers didn't think so. What's your perspective on this? And what does it mean in terms of drug development, creating new vaccines for the next mutation, uh, and so on? I just don't think it's fundamentally helpful. Um, and, and I think I used this analogy before, maybe even last time I was on here, mm-hmm. but the, these therapeutics are so new. They're so cutting edge that a lot of the innovation that there is actually in in the manufacturing side. And so you can waive Moderna's patents, but you, you won't be able to access all of their interior secrets to how they make those vaccines and, and the, the, the actual sort of even reading through the patents. Uh, I think the best analogy that I that I had come up with was, you know, if you had Gordon Ramsay's 
uh, ingredients in front of you and his recipe in front of you, could you cook like him? No. And the answer is, of course, no. Right. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. So I just don't believe it's helpful. And I felt like when the Biden administration did that um, and they washed their hands of this vaccine issue and said, well, we've done all the help we can and walked away. And we're still sitting with one out of 74 people in developing countries with vaccines. And I think that's just an absolute shame. So the point is, by not just you're saying that even if we just open this up, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we'd be able to produce tons and tons of vaccines easily and readily so that we could vaccinate basically everybody very much more quickly. They, they waived those patents three months ago, four months ago. Yeah. And please point me to the, to the example of what country then spun up their manufacturing and magically had COVID vaccines ready to go. It was just the, 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 the obvious thing, of course, would have been to go back a year and start investing in the infrastructure of these vaccines. And we can start making those infrastructure investments. We're seeing people like Anthony Fauci now um, echoing some statements that I've made before, which is we need to double down on both manufacturing infrastructure, these next generation therapeutics, and we need to start thinking about how are we better prepared for pandemics in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but further than that, I think that we, we just need better manufacturing infrastructure. We should have, it's true, we should have made that, that, uh, th- those investments a year ago when it looked like the mRNA vaccines were going to be a promising way out of this. We didn't make those investments. And so now the, I, I just feel like the, the, the administration seemed to want to wave the patents as if that was going to fix the problem. It didn't fix the problem. And then here we are. Um, with, without the problem being fixed, I'm not worried about the, the patents of the drug company, or, or and I don't think Stefan Bansell or or Uwe mm-hmm. are, are worried about it either. But it, it's just fundamentally not helpful. Well, the, so we've gone through a lot to say. Understatement of the year of the decade uh, in terms of the last year and a half. Are we, you know, you understand this world, you're on the cutting edge in terms of looking at new science and developing uh, new methodologies, if you will. So have we learned anything in terms of being ready for the next pandemic in your view? I think that we had the technology, the mRNA technology was already being progressed by mm-hmm. Moderna, by the NIH, by Tony Fauci, by, by all the people who are there. What we really needed was public and, and legislative support to invest in these things, to understand uh, that these were issues, right? The, the people at the DOD, people at DARPA, people at the CDC, everyone has been screaming about the fact that we are at risk for a new pandemic for decades. I've heard it my entire professional life. Uh, almost to where you stop thinking about it, even as a professional in the space. And now I think where we're sitting at is we have a very full public understanding of what a pandemic looks like in a modern age. Not in 1920, but in a day where you can, you can be in Wuhan, China one day, step on a plane, and 14 hours later be walking out to the middle of New York City. And that is a, can be a very scary place for the, the propensity right. of a pandemic. So I think now we have the understanding of the economic and personal toll that these sorts of things can take. And I hope, I really do hope, that it means that we can get the public and the legislative support to actually make real bold investments into the future of defense. Going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much. I always appreciate when uh, you join us and uh, find some time for us. Dr. Jake Beecraft, he is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Strand Therapeutics, joining us on the phone from Boston. Well, online at BloombergBusinessWeek.com, a story on a topic that may make your 
make you roll your eyes a little bit or possibly glaze over. But it's something that always seems to indicate another crisis moment in Washington until it doesn't and then until it rears its ugly head again. It's about the debt ceiling. So let's get more from Bloomberg News, head of U.S. rates and FX, Benjamin Purvis. He is here in our interactive broker studio in New York City, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber on the remote access in Massachusetts. Is it fair to say like your eyes glaze over or you shake your head, you roll your head, you're like, okay, it's a story that's going to pass. And then all of a sudden it shows up again, Joel. Oh, I mean, I was like, wait, what? It's back. <laughs> and of course it is. Um, and it's been a little bit since we, we've had to uh, play this game of chicken. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is it is back and, you know, it it will have repercussions. And, and Ben, how are how are those starting to already show up? What what has investors and traders um, uh, freaking out? I, I, I think, you know, investors are sick of this thing, to be honest. I mean, you know, I think you make the point that, you know, it, it comes up, got your eyes glaze over, but it is important. It's at once ridiculous and, and, and utterly important. Um, it's ridiculous in the sense that, you know, these folks are voting on increasing a limit for debt that they've already, you know, increased the spending bills for. So they've already approved the spending, yet now we have to go out and approve the, the debt to, to, to finance it. But at the same time, you know, this is having real world impacts. And this is part of what we were, we've been writing about uh, recently is the real world impacts on, on borrowing costs, the real world impacts on distorting things, just because of some of the, the ins and outs and the arcane rules surrounding it. So what is this thing we call debt ceiling? <laughs> because <laughs> we throw it around and assume everybody knows what we're talking about. But, I mean, what is it really? I mean, essentially, it's the, it's the amount, the, the credit card limit, if you will, of the U.S. government. And, you know, the Congress sets what it allows the government to borrow and then periodically uh, has to raise that limit because America's debt pile is, is not getting any smaller. It's, you know, ballooned and ballooned even more in this sort of post-COVID crisis to around 28 trillion. So, you know, this isn't getting any smaller and you know, the spending bills that allow this, uh, that, that require this spending, uh, this borrowing, you know, they've already been passed. This has already happened. So it's literally just saying, I'm going to agree to pay off the credit card bill for all this stuff that I bought from Macy's or whatever. Um, and I, get, I could get a lot of stuff at Macy's for $28 trillion. For, for could buy Macy's. You probably could a few times <laughs> a over. A couple times over. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, uh, you know, as part of all of this, you know, we end up with a, a partisan wrangle each time. Uh, and it's something that happens under administrations of both parties. You know, it happened under Barack Obama. It happened under Donald Trump. It's happening again under Joe Biden. And one party holds the other to, you know, to account, they, they like to describe it, but it's really just holding them hostage to what is fundamentally a, you know, a superfluous thing. Um, because we know they're going to find the money, correct? Is that a stupid assumption or? No, everyone, everyone bet, you know, everyone is essentially betting on the fact that, you know, somehow or another, you know, they'll come up with a, with a fix on it. And, and that's one of the other ludicrous elements of this is that, you know, the debt limit is now back in place. It came back in place at the beginning of this month. Yet America is continuing to borrow because they've got so-called extraordinary measures, which allows them to wangle a few things here, do a few nips and tucks there, do a few accounting maneuvers somewhere else. And all of this has an impact. Um, you know, it sort of underscores how ludicrous it is. Um, and one element that really underscores it that, we, that we, we talk about is this idea that, you know, as part of the whole mechanics of it, they have to get the pile of cash that America has down. Right. Um, 
the essential reason being this is to stop them going out and say issuing five trillion dollars worth of debt just before the, the the ceiling comes into place and then just using that to pay their bills at their leisure without having to do it this time round, everyone was talking about oh we have to get the cash pile down we have to get it down to about 130 odd uh, billion dollars which isn't chicken feed but is not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things for uncle sam and then Lo and behold, at some point in that process, the Treasury says, actually, that number's not 130, right. it's 450. <laughs> so, All right, for those you of know, you whose eyes you, are glazing over, stay with us, right, Joel? <laughs> not only that, because th- I think this is the, the other element that comes into play here is that there's an anniversary here. This is 10 years ago that the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. actually uh, you know, went through this whole song and dance and S&P came out with a decision that stripped the U.S. of its AAA credit rating, which, Ben, what have been the repercussions of that decision ever since? And what kind of bearing might that have on the conversations this time around? Well, I mean, the cynics would say that, you know, America has only gone from, you know, strength to strength in terms of what it can borrow and how it's been able to borrow since then. The debt pile has, ex- you know, exploded since then. Interest rates have actually been lower since then. So in, in, in real world terms, it hasn't affected the ability of the borrower to, to borrow. But, you know, it, it did cause some major ructions within markets. It caused some major troubles and, and, and you know, it under, you know, underscores how, you know, fragile, you know, some of these things are and that this isn't really a play thing that, that Washington folks should be, you know, messing around with for partisan politics. Because well, you write about that to get the cash balance down, correct, mm-hmm. that the Treasury does affect markets mm-hmm. because it's not borrowing as many T-bills. That's right. So this, you know, supply demand, right? Things happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's one of, it's the the biggest, baddest debt market on the planet. <laughs> it, you know, dictates the cost of every, you know, of everything that sort of people overlay over it. And, you know, even minor changes that affect the interest rates on, say, you know, a three-month bill or a six-month bill can have repercussions down the line. And you know, the Treasury deciding to issue half as much as it did, that'll have a major impact on the costs. So when we think about how this could come to a head, what, what are you going to be watching, Ben? Well, unfortunately, it's that good old waiting game of, of looking at uh, what uh, Mitch McConnell's doing, what Chuck Schumer's doing, and all the all the usual suspects in Washington. Um, you know, we've just seen today um, the latest in the wrangling over uh, over this um, topic, and obviously, it's it's being interspersed with wrangling over other spending type priorities, over the infrastructure bill we've got in Washington, over the broader spending agenda that the Biden administration is looking to pursue. And these are all being counterbalanced as part of some, you know, we would like to say some big chess game, but right. maybe it's not so uh, so well thought out. I love how you end that. It's not to say that debt and deficits don't matter, but the way the U.S. thinks and legislates on the topic needs to change. And I think most of us who've been following this or like you who've been watching this over and over again, things need to change. Safe to say. All right. Benjamin Purvis, thank you so much. Uh, it's an important story to understand what keeps coming round and round uh, when it comes to government negotiations on spending and how to pay for it. Uh, Benjamin, of course, uh, Ben is head of U.S. rates and FX at Bloomberg News. And of course, Jill Weber, our editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Find that online at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Master. Tim Stenovic is off. Bloomberg Business Week brought to you by SEI. Today's competitive marketplace requires asset managers to become more operationally adept. See how you can transform your business with SEI's global platform at seic.com slash IMS. Well, it's been chronic, the flow of headlines out of China, in particular crackdowns on the country's big tech companies and more. But what's really going on here? Well, let's find out. And he writes about it in his weekly column. Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. He notes that there is something much bigger going on. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So you and I have talked a lot about the headlines, and I feel like they are fast and furious, uh, nonstop. Um, very thoughtful column, and you look at it in a different way. What's, what do you see is really going on here? So the question everybody wants the answer to is why on earth are Chinese authorities going after the most dynamic, the most profitable part of their economy, which of course is the tech sector and particularly consumer tech? At a crackdown, by the way, that has cost listed Chinese companies in excess of $1 trillion. And I happen to think that the most popular explanation for this is also the most unlikely. And the explanation everybody is coming up with is this is, this is sort of benign. This is President Xi Jinping looking at rising prices in China and saying this is exacerbating inequality and we have to do something about it. And that, will, that involves cracking down on tech companies who are allegedly building monopolies and underpaying their gig workers and abusing consumer data and so on and so forth. I happen to think this is a fig leaf that actually this is all about a monumental struggle for power and control in China. And the giveaway, the giveaway here is the fact that the sharp end of this crackdown, and you're seeing it now, particularly last week, is led by ideologues in the party and including in the propaganda agencies, which really are core to power in China. Well, right. And that... I mean, if you think about impacting people, right, in terms of how they're thinking about it. So so you're basically saying, Andy, the Chinese government's a little bit worried about losing its power of controlling its people. Is that it? I think they look, it's not, it's certainly not the full story, but it's a much more likely explanation than going after tech moguls because that's their pathway for reducing inequality. If that really was what they had in mind, they would be doing something about public policy because the, it's public policy that shapes education, right. shapes healthcare, um, you know, shapes shapes housing markets, which are the three biggest drivers of inequality in China today. Right. And what's interesting is you talk about. I mean, the government controls so many of these different markets, right? Right. Already, so it's like, well, white. Right. Well, so you take so they close down the entire hundred billion dollar ed tech sector, right? Right. Okay, then you ask yourself, why is, how, how did this sector uh, come into being? Well, you know, it's a market response to a brutally, brutally competitive education system, which, by the way, in rural areas of China is chronically underfunded. Right. Parents will pay anything to get their kids through examinations, particularly the Gaokao examination that gets you into good colleges, mm -hmm. and is the... It is the pathway to social mobility 
in China. That's why you have an ed. Now, if you want to fix the, your, your, your problem, you do something about the structure of education. Right. And it's a similar story in healthcare, the same story uh, in, in housing. Because if you control it or shut it down, it just becomes even more accessible, right? Right. Well, that's the crazy thing. Now, now, if, if you're not going to be or able more to, to, to go online, uh, you're basically forcing forcing uh, uh, poorer fam- middle-class families to accept one-on-one home tutoring. Right? Andy, we have these conversations often with you and just generally because it's been impacting also financial markets. I mean, where does it go? How do you see it playing out? You understand, obviously, having spent time there, kind of how they think and how they approach things. So where does this go? How do you think this ultimately plays out? I think this, this, this is by no means the end of the story. I think we're at the beginning of an almighty struggle uh, uh, for, uh, for power and control in China. And this, this is Xi Jinping and the party saying, you know, we've identified the one part, uh, the, 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 the one class of people in China mm-hmm. that can rival us, the party in influence. They have the wealth, they have the social standing, and they have the strategic resources, big data. And the party is saying, we want that. We want to claw back control and power. What could big tech ultimately, if they have their way and they're able to kind of keep running with it, how could that really change the power structure? I mean, I understand how it can influence thought, right? But I mean, in terms of actually changing the Chinese government, could it? No, okay. you're, you're not. No, I mean nobody. Nobody is talking about overthrowing. But the people. But the question, in, you know, from from Xi Jinping's point of view, is we're about to go into. We are in a pro, we are now in a period of extreme competition with the United States. Essentially, they've decided that the U.S. wants to contain China, wants right. to stop it rise, wants to take it down. They want the data. They need power. They need to consolidate their control. Uh, they want to have a top-down economy. They believe actually that big data will be able to guide a high-tech authoritarian regime, and it'll be much, much more successful than the U.S. model. So, for I know I always bring it back to you for this, because and forgive my ignorance in terms of kind of understanding, but I do think about investors because I don't feel like I know Kathy Wood and Ark. They've kind of pulled back a little bit, but not every investor has. Just got about thirty seconds left here. Do investors need to be increasingly nervous? They do need to be increasingly nervous because because there is no way of divining where this thing is going to play out. Once it enters the period, once it enters the realm of ideology and politics, there is no model that can predict mm-hmm. where this is going, no matter what Chinese regulators say. All right, going to leave it on that. I know you sent us a lot more stories, so we'll have to get to them next time. So I apologize, but I love. Uh, I, I'm glad that we were able to dig into this, Andy. Thank you. Appreciate it. Andy Brown, he's editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy in our interactive broker studio. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These plants are becoming more and more expensive. You're looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. There's a lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. <laughs> The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio.
All right, well, the Bloomberg Big Take happens to be also the most read story on the Bloomberg today. It's about the little-known hedge fund and its manager that blew up to the tune of $20 billion, making both the fund and the individual behind it household names just a few months ago. Let's get uh, more on this story. Bloomberg hedge fund reporter Kathy Burton, she's with us in our interactive broker studio in New York. Uh, there was a period where, like, every day, this is what we talked about. We're talking about Archegos. Right. So remind our audience in case they forgot, because it really was this individual and fund that we never talked about, really. Well, yes. The, Until the we thing did. is that it's it's a, actually a family office um, for a guy named Bill Huang, who used to be a hedge fund manager. Right. He got into a little bit of legal issues with the uh, SEC, and then he turned into a family office of several years ago. That's right. I forgot. He went through a couple of iterations. So remind us, though, that, you know, then it blew up, right, to the tune of $20 billion. Spectacularly. Yes. No one realized that he had amassed an amazing fortune of more than $20 billion. And then in two days, it disappeared. And we're still trying to, you and I were talking before we got going, there's still so many questions out there about kind of what happened. Yes, exactly. There was a big report uh, that came out uh, from Credit Suisse several mm -hmm. days ago. And in that report, they said that uh, Archegos, the family office, likely lied about to the bank. But they g provided no other details of, of exactly what that means. And they did say that they were going to go after uh, Archegos to try and get some money back. Well, and to be fair, there are obviously a lot of litigation going on at this point. Uh, right? We, not or, or, yet, or, but we expect that, yes, there will be. I mean, what's interesting, listen, Kathy, you follow Wall Street, the financial community, the hedge fund industry. I mean, we, we want to kind of know what happened, right? Because this is one of those stories that we think there's a fair amount of transparency, right, in the financial markets. And then all of a sudden something like this blows up and you're reminded that, wait a minute, something can happen to the tune of $20 billion kind of from nowhere. Yes, and in that Credit Suisse report, which uh, people can see, um, there are many examples of in which the bank actually said, Archegos sort of told us that they had similar positions at other banks. Uh, and then it's really hard to imagine that they were allowed to build up uh, a portfolio that was worth about $120 billion, including leverage. Which is pretty remarkable. Okay, so... And transparency maybe would have helped <laughs> prevent that from all from happening. What's great about this story is, as I said to you, uh, you know, there was a period where we were talking about this constantly as, as it unwound uh, in the financial markets and just kind of getting a grasp of who this individual was. Um, he's still around. He's still around. He's at, um, in New Jersey. It's where he lives, right? That's and where, and he, where lives. he lived before. And where he lived before. And he's... Uh, just trying to work through this big fiasco that's happened to him. And there's, the SEC is looking into it, the DOJ is looking into it, he has employees who are angry at him because they lost all their deferred comp when the firm blew up. Right. And he has some employees that are hoping to start their own hedge funds. And is he supportive of that? Uh, as far as we can tell, he is, although we don't know if that support extends to giving them money or not. And that's, I guess, one of the questions. As you said, there's still a lot of questions out there. I mean, he, um, you know, lives in an expensive place in New Jersey, right? I mean, he's not somebody, though, that was really flashy, right? No, not Compared at all. I mean, the house is nice, but it's not 
Steve Cohen nice or Ray Dalio nice. It's it's just a nice house. Right, exactly. And and we don't still know what money he's got left, right, personally. No. Uh, his employees uh, speculate that he is still a billionaire. Mm-hmm. But because um, we're told that he has investments outside of Arkegos. He was, for example, an early investor in Kathy Wood's um, ETFs, although we don't know if he still has that or not. We also know that in the final week, he took about $2 billion in excess margin from Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what happened to that money. We don't know if if he put it someplace else or if he used it to pay off margin calls from other banks. We, We don't know. Um, just got about 45 seconds left here, Kathy. Um, and I do highly recommend, as I said, it's a most read story, the most read on the Bloomberg in doing this and kind of doing this update update on kind of, you know, where he is, how he's doing, what's your big takeaway right now on either he, him and just kind of where this story sits right now? Uh, mostly that there's just a lot more to, to come. We'll probably see some sort of suit or something from Credit Suisse in which we'll be able to get more information, maybe from the other banks too, we don't know. Uh, and it's it's just really an ongoing tale, and it's going to be interesting to see where, if he still tries to come out and have a new family office, for example. Right, right. I mean, we've seen people, right, <laughs> decimate and come back, um, and it's just a reminder that this is evolving and more to come out. It's a must read. I'll put it out on Twitter. There's so much great detail in it. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Kathy Burton, hedge fund reporter at Bloomberg News in our interactive broker studio. As I said, it is the Bloomberg Big Take on this Monday. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about ten and a half minutes left in today's trading day. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us. Scott Kuby, he's Chief Investment Officer at Carson Group. He is with us on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Scott, good to have you back here on Bloomberg. How are you? Great, and thanks for having me back, Carol. Well, it's good to have you here. How do you see the market environment right now? You know, we're seeing this as a market that's obviously rallied a lot. Uh, we've had some great earnings news that I think is pretty much fully reflected in market prices. Uh, and and so from that standpoint, I don't think we, we're expecting super large exorbitant gains um, from this point forward. But at the same time, I don't see that there's a lot of pressure against the market sending it lower with a couple, I think, major risk factors out there, um, COVID and some other ones that we can dive into as well. But what we see is a market that's reflected a lot of the good news is out there and we don't really want to encourage people not to chase after uh, markets that have already run from from some news that's very much fully reflected in it all right so a lot of good news out there reflected in the prices existing already in the financial markets the equity markets and yet you're not necessarily saying that we now deserve a pullback either 
No, I, I think that the valuations are, are in a reasonable stage. And we've also got a, a tremendous amount of, of, of momentum going in the market. One of the things I think we've learned from the corporate earnings news that came out this quarter, but actually even going back uh, to, to periods about a year ago when things were obviously uh, during the greater degrees of lockdown and challenges is corporate America's ability to produce profits is really an amazing factor. It really starts to show one of those longer-term reasons about why we take risk in our portfolios, why we invest in the markets, why capitalism works for people, is because it generates returns and the people are managing the businesses very well. And whether it's smaller profits, but more than expected during COVID, or really large rebounds, what we've really seen is that being participating as an owner in corporate America has been a great uh, great for, uh, proposition for investors for really, especially the last year and a half. All right. So having said that, is are there particular parts of the market that you would prefer being in right now? Yeah, I, I think one of the areas that we continue to see some opportunity is in the technology space, especially in the security spot. Uh, one of the areas that we risk, uh, you know, from our macro perspective, is we look, we look at a number of major risks that are out there, and one of them that we've identified is these these attacks on on companies um, that are you know where they're held hostage with their computer networks, and those that sort of attack is something that hasn't hit us real hard. It's been more of a minor irritant, but we rate that as one of our top risks out there. And I think that one of the beneficiaries of that are going to be technology companies, especially those who provide security to corporations, mm. especially those really vital to our system. And so that's one of those longer term trends from a risk standpoint that we think people will rally to. And that's one of the areas that we're uh, looking for, for investments in is in the, in the technology security area. Right. And if you think about it, companies increasingly, they can't ignore it, right? Because their business is put at risk if they're not uh, making sure that their business and certainly as things are much more online and digital, like you've got to just make sure it's protected. Um, China, something we just talked about with Andy Brown a little while ago of our Bloomberg New Economy about what's going on in China. How do you see it? What are the implications for investors as a result? You know, China has been another one of those risks that's been on our top five for really a while. Uh, we see a number of big trends that are negative, like the U.S. and China butting heads on a lot of different areas, partly from like the Chinese perspective. It feels like the U.S. is shutting them out of the value-added technology space just when their economy needs higher-paying jobs because they don't have the same population growth as they used to. In the shorter term, I think what we've really seen is that China is becoming much more negative in its efforts to try to control the capitalist tendencies mm -hmm. that were so successful within the economy, that clearly is a very, very bad sign uh, for, for investors. And that's been very much heavily reflected in prices. And I think there's also that we haven't seen much movement on trade or any other issues that have been rollbacks of some of the Trump policies. There have been a few minor adjustments. But basically, even though we had a change in, tra in administrations, I would say that that overall system from a U.S. investor standpoint is probably more, more concerning than it was before. And therefore, that's one of the big risk points that we've identified. All right. That is interesting. What about the Fed as, a, <laughs> as another risk? Yeah, I think that's definitely one that we see policy risk, partly on the fiscal side, but really with the Fed side. And I think that people are overplaying the risk of Fed too too much to one side. Mm -hmm. There's the idea that the mean, Fed to the negative downside, to the negative yeah, side, yeah, to the hawkish. And, but there's also you know the sense that they could be too hawkish, and they can also be too dovish. I think the Fed's had a fairly, I think they had a great response initially in COVID. They've had a pretty easy run. I mean, what are they going to do next meeting? Pretty much the same thing they've been doing for a while, meeting after meeting. After well, they're not going to do well, anything think, to shock the world, right? Like we know, if anything, we've 
learned. We understand policy will change, but we also know that the Fed isn't going to all of a sudden just go take a 180. That's just not how it happens. And I think one of the things that you raised there is a really good point. I think investors are still concerned about going back to periods where the Fed had problems communicating well. Mm -hmm. I really think that the Fed, the last few Fed chairs have done a much better job of communicating what their intentions were in the market. And so I see that sort of taper tantrum risk where the market gets surprised to be much lower. And I think Jay Powell and his team have done a great job of signaling what that is. And so that's a risk that we don't see as high, being that the Fed will surprise I don't think the Fed's got a big surprise built in their system. And that's one of the things that when we look at why we continue to invest, why we aren't so negative or as concerned as some people are, is just because we just don't see that risk as being particularly material. I think their tougher one is how soon do they start tapering and do they push it too hard? I think the last time when they tightened policy, I think in eight consecutive meetings, and they rolled back some other policies in, in another one that were looser. So they basically tightened monetary policy meeting after meeting after meeting. That was too fast. And I think that's the harder thing for the Fed is to say, how do we do it? What pace do we do it so we don't get too far behind? But also in the last case that they got too far ahead and had to roll some of those back even before the pandemic started and really had a tighter monetary policy than the U.S. could really handle. Commodity move today, significant in your view? Um, yeah, I thought the gold move was interesting because it represented a deviation from where really real yields are. It had, it, it, mm-hmm. it had tied very carelessly. I suspect that's a supply and demand, something driven by investor moves. I think the. I, I also think when I look at oil prices, my expectation is that there's some degree of supply that is out there that is available to move in. The, the producers in the U.S. are trying to be more disciplined, but in the end, there's going to be more wells drilled. I think the other aspect is concern about how the Delta variant might slow down demand in China, more lockdowns essentially rolling through. And that's something important for U.S. investors to know is is that we're not the biggest demander of most commodities. Most of the time, the Chinese are. And actions that they take can actually directly affect our markets pretty severely because of the prices. I think that's a good today, a a good reminder of what we're seeing. Uh, My expectation is oil will drift down lower, partly from supply and partly from some of the demand on COVID until we start to see those next waves of booster shots come out. So we'll see some tightening of policy right. as far as lockdowns, but, but not a ton. Uh, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist and editor, pointed out that when you take a look at the 10-year yield, it's at 132. S&P dividend yield is at 1.32. What does that say to you? And just got about 25 seconds here. Uh, that yield on the 10 years not offer a really good return uh, compared to, especially compared to where inflation expectations are and where they're going. And so uh, that's a tough space, but it's still good for risk reduction. But yeah, longer term bonds, we would expect to see yields drift up some over time. But it is interesting to see them both uh, right there smack on uh, the same. Hey, Scott, good to check in with you. Scott Kuby, he is Senior Investment Strategist at the Carson Group on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.